Happy Palm Sunday, GBC. Uh, miss you guys so much. Miss seeing your faces, uh, but it's been great seeing your faces virtually, just in our over Zoom for our Wednesday prayer meeting, uh, or just FaceTime one-on-ones, or just hearing your voices over the phone. And uh, it's just been great to, to experience that with you. Uh, one phone call in particular uh, was wonderful, except uh, I got pretty highly criticized for uh, my choice of shirt last time I preached. Uh, this person was just saying it was too too dreary, too bland, and uh, really wanted me to spice and liven things up a little bit. And so uh, this shirt is worn right now in honor of that individual. You know who you are, Danny Nedaleski, and uh, I just hope you enjoy this. I hope this is a better image for you today. But uh, anyways, I really do miss you guys, and I'm glad we have this time to be together in God's Word. And so this, this morning we're in Isaiah chapter 53, if you can open up your Bibles there. Uh, this is the fourth and final servant song in Isaiah. And I'm going to read this passage in, in its entirety, and then I'm going to pray for us as we spend time in this passage today. It says, uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in this time. Although we are apart physically, Lord, we know that we are united 
and faith to Jesus. Lord, I pray that uh, we would know your nearness to us this morning as we spend time in your word together. I pray, God, that you would speak and that your word would prove itself to be alive and active in our lives. God, give us the word that you desire for us to hear today. Strengthen us in our faith in Christ Jesus, Lord, that he might be glorified in our lives as we navigate through this strange season of time. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your love for us. We ask you to speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, uh, but it seems like we could sure use some good news in our life right now. Uh, All over the world, we're a bit bombarded with bad news. Uh, The economy, death, sickness, fear, uh, what feels like unsolvable problems. And so naturally, we're longing for good news. There's even people like John Krasinski, who's an actor, who's started a YouTube channel called Some Good News, and he's doing pretend news anchoring every day, trying to put out there the the good news that's going on in the world. I I don't know about you, but I want some good news, don't you? Uh, Even on Friday, uh, I received the news and an incredible photo of baby Tate James Kinzer, who was born in his happy, healthy, beautiful baby boy to Warren and Becca. Congratulations, you guys. We are so excited, and I can't wait to meet him. Uh, but man, honestly, just seeing that photo of baby Tate, just, just a, a photo of a new life being birthed into this world was good news. It was, it was like a ray of light in a dark room or something. Uh, but here's the thing. Much of the good news that we are looking for is so that we can, if we're being honest, it's so that we can escape the bad news. Uh, it's to get our minds off of the painful realities of the suffering in our world. But what if we could hear good news this morning that didn't just get our minds off of the bad news, but would actually deal with the bad news? What if the good news we can hear this morning would actually inform and transform the bad news? That's exactly what we are encountering this morning. Uh, When I read that chapter, it probably feels a bit rough on the surface, not a whole whole lot like good news, if you will. But, but it's the best news that you and I could hear and the news that we really honestly need in our moment. Uh, this chapter in Isaiah exposes, if you will, the bad news beneath the bad news. And as it's doing that, though, it's also revealing to us the good news that's beneath all the good news that we're longing to actually hear. You see, fundamentally, news is an announcement, isn't it? It's, it's not advice. It tells you what has happened and how your life now needs to adjust depending on how personal that announcement is to you. So I could put it to you this way. If I heard there was a baby born in Gresham this week, that would be cute. That would be amazing. That would be a really nice thought. But if I didn't know that baby, it's just, that's great. There's another person now living in Gresham. Uh, if that baby were born into, as a member into, uh, into, into a family that's a member of our church, Um, That's actually happened, right? Like that would be cute. That would be amazing. And I'm even more excited about that because it a little bit more personally involves me now. I get to eventually love on and care for that child like many of us will be able to do. But if the announcement that there was a baby born in Gresham this week is coming to me and that baby was actually birthed into my family, right? I mean, don't worry, we're not pregnant. We didn't have a kid or anything like that. 
We haven't been quarantined that long, right? But uh, if, if that were the, the announcement that I heard this morning, that would be cute and that would be amazing, but my life is now forever different, isn't it? It's forever different because of that news. See, what you and I need to see this morning is that Isaiah 53 is good news, and it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. And what we see, the good news we encounter here, is that the servant has come to suffer in our place, and his suffering successfully saves us from suffering. That's what we see here. That's the three things we see, that the servant has suffered, number one. Secondly, he suffered in our place. And thirdly, to successfully save us from suffering. I want to put this for you on the screen. It's, it's kind of the, uh, the, the structure of our passage, if you will, just so you, you can see how this is actually structured. It's, it's very beautifully and poetically structured. Um, we kind of have these, these outer two parts, the beginning and the end, that are both communicating to us the servant's success. We see that in 13 through 15 and 10 through 12. But then sandwiched one layer in from that, we see the servant's suffering as it's described in verses 1 through 3 and 7 through 9. And then right there, smack in the middle, we see the servant's substitution on our behalf. And this is the central message that we must see, and it's the best news for us. So first, let's look at the servant and how he has suffered. The servant has suffered. We see this in verses 1 through 3 and verses 7 through 9. You guys, Jesus was a sufferer. We have very vivid description here of his suffering. I mean, just look at his life. It was marked with suffering. Look at verse 14. The first thing we notice about this suffering servant is that he looks like, well, like he's suffered, right? Like he's been crucified. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's what it's telling you. Jesus was beaten so badly by Roman soldiers that no one was asking the question, is that the servant of the Lord? That they were more asking the question, is that human? Is that human? That's how badly he was beaten, right? This is the comment about his crucifixion, but look at how Isaiah starts there. But then in the beginning verses of chapter 53, we have described Jesus' life and appearance in general. Isaiah says what? That he is like a root out of dry ground, verse 2. He didn't look promising is what this means. If a root comes out of dry ground, that's a bit out of place. It's not really even that attractive, but it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, or at least what we think it's supposed to be doing. Verse 2 continues on. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. Guys, Jesus wouldn't have been on the cover of GQ, basically. Right? He's, he's not something we'd be looking at. And it says there in verse 3, We esteemed Him not. And notice it says we, right? The suffering servant, just in other words, wasn't very special in the ways that we think are special, right? In fact, he became hideous in his sufferings so that people shunned him. It says, as one from whom men hide their faces. You see that in verse 3. See, part of Jesus' suffering had to do with how he was rejected. That's, that's part of his suffering, that he was rejected, that he was despised. Right? He suffered in that way. Have you, have you ever been rejected? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt despised or undesirable or maybe not very esteemed by your colleagues or your family? This, this servant is a man of sorrows. He's well acquainted with grief. Do you know sorrow? 
Claire, are, are you acquainted with grief? Jesus is. See, we can resonate with these words and his experiences in part, but this is also where we kind of part ways in our resonating of him because he suffered innocently, our passage tells us, yet he was treated as guilty. Look at verse 9 and where they put Jesus in the ground. Read, read here, verse 9 with me. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So they placed him in the ground amongst guilty people. It says, although, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he suffers innocently, but he also suffers willingly. You see that in verses 7 through 8. What does it say? It says, he opened not his mouth. We see this actually played out in vivid imagery in real time, flesh and blood time in Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is standing there with Pilate before his crucifixion. It says in that passage, Pilate said to Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Then if you read later down in verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Guys, think about this. When we finally got our hands on him, on God incarnate, when we finally got our hands on God, what did we do? When we finally saw him, when we finally heard his voice, when we could actually touch him, what did we do? We crucified him. Well, why didn't he defend himself? Why didn't he try and save himself? I mean, if, if you were innocent, wouldn't you do that? Right? He chose to suffer. Verse 7 says he acts as the true and ultimate Lamb of God. Do you see that? His death was not forced upon him. It was actually under his control. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. I mean, just, let's be real. Right? This is so unlike us. This is how we part ways. Right? We rarely suffer willingly and rarely suffer innocently. If we ever do suffer, our reaction actually is to blame. I mean, there's a reason why our problems are always somebody else's fault. Right? There's a reason why parents blame their kids and husbands blame their wives, and we could continue to go on down the list, right? The reason we continually pass the buck is that we know that we can't bear our own guilt. So we dump it on other people, and we don't even give it any thought. This is our knee-jerk reaction. I don't know many of you are watching this right now and your kids, and I need you to know that I was once a kid, right? And what would often happen in my house growing up, I grew up with two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister, We'd often be doing things we shouldn't be doing. We'd be roughhousing and, and something would inevitably break. And my mom or dad would come into the room and they would ask, what happened? Like, who broke this? And you know what I've never done in my entire life? I've never screamed out, I did it. It was totally me. I, I've, I've, I never did that as a kid, right? No, every single time when my mom or dad came into the room and said, who did it? You would inevitably hear, she did it, he did it. Well, I was doing this thing and she was doing that thing. We're continually just passing the buck. We're shifting the blame. And as we sit here, even as parents or adults, we all know that's true, that, that we do the same thing, even though it might not be over something that's broken or whatever it might be. Guys, we point to our innocence and we're quick to point the finger to other people's guilt. 
We don't point to our guilt, though, in other people's innocence. It's only in moments where it's obvious, where we are the only ones to blame, that we stand in the horror of our guilt, where we can't pass the buck to anybody else. Most vividly, I think of a time uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. I was, I was taking a girl out on my very first date, right? I was going out on our very first date. I remember being terrified. I went to her house. I, I approached the door. I talked to her dad, and he was pretty intimidating. He was telling me how I needed to treat his daughter, and I was, you know, just in agreement. And yes, I'll do that. I'll take good care of her. And we drove off and just went down the street. I took her miniature golfing, okay? And we were no joke on hole number two. And I, I was trying to be a flirtatious high school boy, I guess, and I jokingly just kind of gave her a nudge, pretending like I was going to push her into the pond. And when I did that, she tripped over a rock and, no joke, completely fell into the pond from head to toe. I, she vanished. I, I couldn't even see her. I'll never forget what she looked like when she came up out of that water and was just horrified, staring at me. And I knew in that moment, I was, I'd done it. I was, I was guilty. I couldn't look around and go, Oh man, did you see that guy who just came by? I can't believe he did that to you. I'll go get him. Or, you know, there was nobody else. It was just me, and I was exposed for what I had done. And I had to shamefully drive her back to her house, deliver her back to her father, who I just promised I would take care of her 20 minutes before. It was not a good first start. We only had one date. Okay, let's just let's just leave it at that. But nonetheless, I was I was in a moment where I knew I was guilty. It's only in moments where it's obvious where we are the ones to blame that we stand in that kind of horror. We want so badly to point to our innocence and other people's guilt. But one day, you guys, you and I will stand before the face of God, like, like you see my face right now, yet he'll actually be in the room, if you know what I mean. And on that day, there will be no one to point the finger at. Right? How will you stand on that day? Right? How will you not bear the suffering that you deserve in your guilt over your sin against a holy God. How will you stand? This is really good news. Because God has pointed the finger. Not at you, but at his son, the suffering servant. We see here that Jesus not only suffers, but that he, he's not only experienced the hardship of this world that you and I can sometimes resonate with, but his suffering is deeply personal to you. That's what we see next is that he suffers in our place. We see that in verses 4 through 6, that he was a man of sorrows. Verse 3 tells us that. He was well acquainted with grief. Verse 3 tells us that as well. But his sorrows weren't his own, they were ours. We see that in verse 4. Right? His griefs weren't his own, they were ours. I mean, notice how, I mean, those are right next to each other, verses 3 and 4. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows because he carried our sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief because he has borne our griefs, right? Our sorrow, and therefore his sorrow comes from what? Well, it comes from our sin. Am I, am I making this up? Well, not at all. Look at verse 5. We are told that he was pierced, meaning he was nailed. This is crucifixion uh, predicting language, right? This is 700 years even before the day that Jesus would even be crucified, though. That's, a, that's amazing. We are told he's pierced for our transgressions, right? Which is another word for sin or doing what's wrong in the eyes of God. He was crushed for our iniquities, which is another word for sin or doing what's wrong in the eyes of God. 
Well, who pierced him? Who crushed him? Well, this man of sorrows, Jesus, is pierced and crushed and has our sin, has your sin, has my sin laid on him by, verse 6 tells you who, by the Lord. It also says in verse 4, he was smitten by God, not by people. It says in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Do you see this? This is not a human plot, you guys. This is God's idea. This is God's doing. It's, it's divine strategy, if you will. This is God's plan. It's to give us Jesus, to suffer in our place. This is substitution. This is the great exchange, is what it's been called. And what did it give you in exchange? Verse 5 tells you, His chastisement has brought you peace. His stripes have healed you. We have all gone our own way, verse 7 continues. We've hated the shepherd. We've said, I know best. And yet, the sheep who've left the shepherd aren't the ones who are punished. Instead, it's the one who's always stayed. Why? It's to bring peace. Well, what kind of peace is that? Is it physical peace? No, peace between God and you. God and us. We've been in conflict with God and He's made things right. We've been sick and dying and Jesus brings healing. And this is really hard to get our minds around, but we see it in smaller examples in our world. I think of the story in World War II where there was prisoners of war that were used by the Japanese as slave labor along the Burmese railway. And the conditions that they lived in in this camp were just horrible. And many of the people died. But one person in particular was a survivor and they gave an account of what life was like in these prisoner of war camps. And at the end of each day, he tells one story, at the end of each day, the tools were collected, like the shovels and all the stuff that they used from that day of work. And on one occasion, the Japanese guard shouted out to all the prisoners that there was a shovel that was missing and he demanded to know who took the shovel. Right? Nobody was stepping forward to admit that they had taken the shovel, and so he got really furious. He was ranting, he was yelling and yelling that whoever was guilty needed to step forward, and nobody stepped forward, and so he yelled out, all die, all die, and he was about to execute the enti- all the prisoners. And in that moment, one person stepped forward and said, I, t- I did it, I took the shovel. And that man died. He gave his life for the sake of the whole. And later on that night, as they were putting away all the tools again into the shed, they realized that actually all the shovels were here, that there was a miscount. And so everybody who was a prisoner of war in that camp knew this man who died was innocent, that he had stepped forward and given his life for the sake of the whole, even though he had not done that. We love substitution stories. They move us. Some of the most famous films have their climax as an epic substitutionary moment. I mean, you think of Movies like Armageddon or The Last of the Mohicans or Interstellar or Gravity. We just see in all those stories that, that this idea is, is really written onto our hearts. This is the central message, Jesus for you. I mean, John Sott says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing. It is your curse I'm suffering. Your debt I'm paying. Your death I'm dying. Well, maybe you hear that and you think, well, that ain't me. I don't fall into that category. But look, it says in verse 8, 
all we like sheep have gone astray. Guys, Jesus did what no martyr has ever done, what no Christian will ever have to do. He died under the wrath of God. He died my death. Did my sins do that to Jesus? Yeah. My sins crucified the Son of God. See, if Jesus is death, if it wasn't for sin, it was just a death in general, he was just mistreated and he died, right? Then, then, then I had no part in his death. It's not very personal to me. It's, maybe I just feel sad about it or something. But if Jesus died for sin, right? If he died for sin, if this was God's strategy to save us from our sin, if he died for sin, then the cross is really personal to me. Right? The cross is intensely personal. I want to show you an image, It'll be on the screen here for you. It's a painting by Rembrandt. It's a famous painting called The Raising of the Cross, painted in the early 1600s. And Rembrandt, you'll notice here in the painting, he painted himself into this image of Jesus being crucified. He's painted himself in with this really historically inaccurate man in the turban. I mean, that's meant to be jarring to you that people didn't wear this during the days that Jesus was crucified. This is what painters during Rembrandt's day would wear so they wouldn't get paint in their hair. And you'll notice here that he's watching this scene from a distance. he's, He's there. But he's also painted himself into the story as well. Do you notice the man in the beret? at the foot of the cross, that, that's Rembrandt. He, he's, he's displaying his participation in the crucifixion of Jesus. See, painting himself in, Rembrandt realizes and is saying, this isn't just a story. This is my story. Jesus wasn't just crucified. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. Right? Why does the cross matter? The cross matters because the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus was supposed to be for us. Those griefs were my griefs. Those sorrows were my sorrows. Those sins were my sins. See, see, we need much more. A passage like this shows you and I, we need much more than a tweak here or there in our lives, right? If we're, if we're a house, right, we don't just need a little maintenance done, we, we, we don't just need some new furniture or a fresh coat of paint on the walls. We need a whole new house, right? right? To put it in the biblical languages here, we need a new heart. We need a new life, which is exactly what his suffering succeeded in. It's the third thing we see. The first thing we saw was Jesus has suffered, secondly, in my place, to successfully save us from suffering. We see that in verses 13 through 15 and 10 through 12. It's these passages that that are the, the bread that's, that sandwich this passage for us here today. Guys, apart from Jesus, let me ask you, I mean, what does your suffering accomplish? Not much, right? I mean, it feels like a waste, doesn't it? I mean, this is why we want to rush through our suffering, and it feels like a speed bump along the way of getting us where we think we need to go. Our suffering feels that way but not, not, not with Jesus. I mean, notice how our text begins. It's really interesting in verse 13. It fast forwards to the end 
and then it quickly just rewinds and walks us through the plot. It says what? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Right? The suffering servant of the Lord is not to be pitied, you guys. He is to be worshipped. Right? This, is, this is Easter Sunday kind of stuff. This is even Palm Sunday kind of stuff. But the path to his exaltation was a path of suffering. But his suffering was successful. His blood that was shed, we're told in verse 15, now does what? It sprinkles many nations. Isaiah's wanting us to think of priests here. That's what he's wanting us to think of. He's wanting us to think what Israelite priests used to do. Just imagine, remember, if you read your Bibles in any way before, you know that on the Day of Atonement, a priest would walk in into, into the inner courts and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat because blood was necessary for sins to be dealt with and so that Israel would be fit for the presence of God. You can read about this in places like Leviticus chapter 16. Guys, this suffering servant is both our priest, but as we've already seen, he's our sacrifice too. But he doesn't need to be cleansed. In fact, the sprinkling of his blood is pure enough and it's glorious enough that it doesn't just cleanse a few individuals. It sprinkles nations. Then we get down to verses 10 through 12 of chapter 53, and we see further that his suffering wasn't in vain. It wasn't just to fix a few felt needs. It was to actually change your identity and to change your future. Because you see here that his death gives you life. What does verse 10 say? It says, He shall see his offspring and prolong their days. Prolong their days. This is family language. Right? If you're an offspring, that means you got some family, right? Like, like you're somebody's offspring if you're listening to this, right? And that means there's, there's somebody who's family to you. Who are the offspring here? Well, it's all of us who benefit from his death when he justifies us. It's all of us who, who place our faith in his death being our death. Then in verse 12, to further signal this, this servant's success, Isaiah uses military language here. He uses a military metaphor to describe this. Jesus, what is he doing here? He's dividing the spoils of his victory with us, with what we're called here is his strong siblings, if you will. And look, I love this. This is beautiful. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, so through his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. Jesus is satisfied. He is satisfied. Why? Because he is the kind of person who enjoys forgiving sinners. He's the kind of person who enjoys clearing you of your guilt and accounting you as righteous, though it demands that it cost him, though it demands that he bear your sin upon himself. Let me just ask you, where are you at right now? I mean, do you see the whole picture? Do you see the big picture? I mean, it's, it's really hard at times, isn't it? I mean, you might be living in frustration or fear or sorrow. You're suffering. Right? You're trying to escape reality at times to get some relief 
from this world. And if you're being really honest with me, I'm saying Isaiah 53 is, is good news. It's the good news beneath the good news. And you're like, yeah, that, that's kind of good news. But good news would actually be more like uh, this, this coronavirus thing ending or getting a new job. That would be good news. Or making sure I could, I could see my family again or life going back to normal as it, as it was. Good news would be the economy turning back up again or, or whatever. That would be good news, right? That would be really good news. And I, I'm with you in many ways. I hear you. But quite honestly, if that were fixed, there would still be a bad news beneath what existed as bad news for you. It wouldn't be the thing that's, that's really the problem now, would it? It wouldn't be the good news that you need to hear, right? And quite honestly, when those things are out of place and we're longing for good news to speak into those moments, let's just be honest, we're longing for heaven. We're longing for perfection where everything is made right again. That's what we're longing for. So this is why this is such good news. It's the good news beneath the good news because Jesus isn't like us. He doesn't want to just escape reality. He has entered into it. He doesn't avoid suffering. He has welcomed it. And now whatever suffering we face is very real and very important not to avoid. I want to, want to leave you with this. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it, um, Peter takes our passage in Isaiah 53 and he applies it to people who are being persecuted for their faith. They're dispersed, right, all over the place. They're suffering different hardships, whether it's economic hardships and, and different reasons for following Jesus even. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And here's Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As you see, if, if Christ suffered for you and left us an example to follow in his steps, then maybe our suffering, whether it is persecution or just painful results from this fallen world that we're experiencing, maybe our suffering can actually be a moment to reorient us to God. Dream with me just for a second. What if this moment in time wasn't something that God was simply helping us get through? What if God is bringing about greater news? What if in our suffering, God is redirecting the eyes of nations that he's sprinkling with his blood, turning the eyes of nations to the suffering servant? What if? One thing I do know is that God doesn't waste time. And one thing I do know is that Jesus' suffering wasn't wasted either. His blood sprinkles nations. Guys, Jesus is with you this morning, way more than I am. And he's, he, he's looking at you. And if you haven't trusted 
in him to save you. In other words, if the cross isn't personal to you yet, the invitation is to, by faith in Jesus, make it personal. To receive what he's done for you. I invite you to do that. Right? By his wounds you will be healed. Right? Come to Jesus. Look into his face. His sacrifice was good enough for God. Why shouldn't it be good enough for you? Then he looks into your eyes, right? Looks into your face this morning. As your passage says, he is satisfied. His suffering wasn't wasted. It was worth it. Let me ask you, are you still bearing your sorrows and your griefs? Are you still bearing your guilt and your shame? Do you need some good news this morning? The good news beneath the good news is here. Because of his substitutionary death, we will never suffer in the way that we deserved. And when we do suffer, we don't suffer without hope. Because we know the good news, that God the Son has entered into our suffering, and He suffers on our behalf, so that one day He will bring an end to all suffering. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the way in which You've, you've come and You've suffered in our place. God, um, you didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve that. This is extravagant grace, Lord, that we're speaking of this morning. And I pray that it would land in our ears and our hearts in a way that would just cause us to worship you, that would cause us to, to say, take it all, just whatever you want. My life is yours. Father, we lay our lives down and follow you in response to your extravagant grace for us right now. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. I just want to leave you guys with this benediction from Psalm 34. It says, verses 8 through 10, uh, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I pray as a church this week that we would taste and see that the Lord is good as we walk through this holy week, that we would take refuge in Him knowing we lack no thing, and ultimately, ultimately, that we would seek the Lord, that we would seek the Lord this week. Love you guys. Have a great week.